Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest, Michael Lilienthal. Or am I? The, you you are, though. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I know you were having a crisis there, and I just solved it for you. So. <laughs> gentle listener, Michael may have sounded very facetious when he said, or am I, but he was, there were tears, there was... There were like the tears that have blood in them, those kinds of tears. It was, it, was it was deep emotional stress. Yeah, and I just solved it, and now Thank he you. looks very happy. Thank you. Like it's a complete turnaround. You changed happy. my life. I did. I did. So. Very good. So, uh, I guess we're going to record a podcast now. Is that what we do? I think, <laughs> I think that's why we pointed what? this microphone at ourselves. Oh. Like we we haven't been talking in this sort of presentational manner just because it's what we do. Though I I can see where you would be confused because it is also what we do, including when we're alone in a room, whether Scotch is in it or not. Right. But gentle listener, none of that is true at this point. For this is Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch, and as you know from listening to two episodes ago now. I can't keep track of, like, this whole having multiple Well, you know, on the plans. website, too, it says right at the top, if you look at the, the Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch page on the Tapestry website, it says, don't listen in order. Does it? <laughs> yep. <Say that? laughs> I never look at our website, yep. so that's, that's good to know. Yep. Uh, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really. I like, mean, really, the only thing that matters is the, the two-part episodes. Those you should listen to in order. Although it Unless might be a want... weird, surreal sort of thing to listen to part two and then part That's one. That's what I was going to say. If you want a really absurdist sort of <laughs> experience, rather than the like semi-absurdist experience that we give you anyway. Anyway, so, yeah, this is Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. We are at part one of speaking about Saul Bellow's novel, Ravelstein, mm-hmm. uh, which Michael picked last month. Um, forced you to read it. And forced me to... Which is really what the show is about, just the two of us finally sitting down and like, we, we, we'd like exchanged books and said, oh, you've got to read this and had mm-hmm, those kinds mm-hmm. of conversations for years. But this show is like finally us just formalizing right. being able to take a book and because, literally shove it down the other person's throat. Because every time Ethan would hand me a book, I would literally set it on a shelf for two months and then hand it back to him. Right. And <laughs> I would literally set it on a shelf for two years. When Michael gave me a book, <laughs> sometimes read it, but more often just hand it back to him. I did read I Am a Cat, though. You did. You it, did. It that might come me... up on this podcast, too. I, I, I've been anticipating it, quite sure. frankly. <laughs> though if you do I Am a Cat to me, first of all, that's your second gigantic novel that you've inflicted I know, on me. I know. It, it'll happen in the off-season. And third of all... <laughs> What off-season? <laughs> I didn't know we had an off-season. Have you been taking time off without me? Anyway, that's a discussion for another day. I was going to say, though, third of all, if you do inflict I Am a Cat on me, I'm going to inflict Tristram Shandy on you. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, we're anyway, talking about Rattlestein by We're talking by about Saul Rattlestein Bello. by Saul Bellow. And to accompany our discussion, yeah. I have picked out a scotch, which I am now taking out of the very cleverly hidden uh, paper bag. Right behind me. Right behind Michael and me. Ooh. Our scotch this month, gentle listener, as you as you can see if you're watching our podcast Ooh. at home. Mm-hmm. Yes, very nice. Is you know, we don't even need to tell them. They see it. Well, but the other ones we do. Oh, okay. Like, some of them have left. That's true. like, brushing their teeth in the other Oh, day. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rudely. Yeah. Stop rudely. brushing your teeth while you're listening to our podcast. You butt. Um, 
So, this month's scotch is Glenmorangie, uh, the Quinta Rubin scotch, which is a scotch apparently finished in port cast. That sounds amazing. Right? Um, it is distilled and matured in Rothshire, which I can only assume is in Scotland. Yeah, yeah um, probably. Especially That's a since good it bet. also says produced in Scotland since 1843 and perfected by the 16 men of Tain. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what any of that means, but it sounds it amazing. Sounds awesome. Uh, it's a really it, handsome, it's, it's a, like black box with yeah. gold lettering. and Very minimalist, especially yeah, compared to yeah. some of the other very right, sort of right. florid scotch boxes we've seen. But, right, it's, but, it's no Jura superstition, I'll tell you that. Or even uh, uh, the one that I picked that had like the... The old Pulteney? No, the the one that I can never I can never even pronounce the name when I'm looking at oh, it. Oh, 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 um, um the... Um, but it had like an old mill yeah, on the side or yeah. a distillery. But yeah, it's it's all like Planalakti. Something yep. like that. Anyway. Yep. I'm sorry to any actual Scotch aficionados who are listening to this and probably despairing. Ooh. But yes, the as you can see, gentle listener, the uh Scotch has oh a lovely sort of ruby color to it. That's awesome. Exactly what you'd expect if you just took Scotch and sort of it fused it with port. Right. Um that's so amazing. I'm very excited about this scotch. I am too. So we're un uncorking the scotch. Oh, I didn't do it. Oh, come on. I didn't do it right. Serve our listeners. There you go. There. So any scotch ASMR aficionados are all very pleased. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry about that, gentle listener. The sudden sense of vertigo you just experienced <laughs> was me. Knocking over the microphone in my eagerness to pour the scotch. For you. Thank you. And should we establish the rules? We should establish the rules. Gentle listener, I have now poured the scotch. In a moment, we are going to clink the scotch glasses together. After such time as the glasses clink together, we must no longer mention the scotch. And if mm-hmm. we do mention the scotch, we suffer the punishment. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the show. <laughs> I know it is, and I gave it to you like ten minutes in last time, and that's not going to happen again, probably. It was like seven last time. <laughs> I was trying to give myself a little bit of dignity. But on the You've been hand, getting progressively here worse. Here we are. You've been, have you been tracking me? <laughs> I would never. I don't, that's better start improving. Anyway. <laughs> I, I better. We're going to have to punish me now. Right. Just as, as the progression goes. In anticipation. Right. So, uh, after we clink glasses, we if we mention the scotch, we suffer the punishment. Mm-hmm. What is the punishment, Michael? It is a verbal stunt to be prescribed by the not loser. So, the, a person who didn't mention the scotch. Exactly. Yes. And Michael has to use that, that term, not loser, because as sure. we established very early on, there are no, no winners. winners. In addition... Even though I've won a couple times. Yeah, gentle listener, we yeah, I know you just winked at me, so we both know where, <laughs> where we stand on that pronouncement. Anyway, um other rules. The other rules, thank you. So, in addition to the Scotch rule, if anyone mentions anyone's mother in any sort of pejorative uh context, such as a your mom joke. Right. They also lose. Yep. Um, Same punishment applies. Yes. If the if the uh, text speaks about someone's mother and in the context of the text, you know, that's that's acceptable to, to talk about mothers right. in that 
In that setting, but in right. no other. No other setting. Exactly. Do we have any other rules? Oh, yep. Michael loses if he mentions vampires. Yep. Um, and what do I lose if I say the first be- paragraph? What? So I have to if I say specifically the first, first paragraph. paragraph. Yep. Okay. Yep. That or, phrase, first paragraph. First paragraph. Yep. Okay. Then I lose. Then you lose. So here yep. we are. So all right. Slancha. Lachaim. So what did you think of Ravelstein? Well, I know you quite specifically said at the end of the last episode that you had never read Ravelstein Correct. before. Um, I'm going to go ahead and not believe you. Okay. <laughs> because I have an alternative theory. <laughs> okay. And my alternative theory is that you wanted to reread Seymour an introduction, <laughs> but longer and written by Saul Bellow instead of J.D. Salinger. <laughs> you know... <laughs> I had some similar thoughts. <laughs> I, I was thinking that in a lot of ways this is very, so much similar to Seymour yeah. and Introduction in just that theme of it being more about the narrator than about his subject. Right, even though in in sort of like on a surface level, it's all about the subject right. and not about the narrator. Right. That it's in fact a... a biography of some kind about the subject right as well as the very non-linear style kind of um um what do you call it i think non-linear is non-linear yeah but like a stream of consciousness oh sure yeah that's that's the the phrase um kind of kind of in a a sense yeah yeah i mean i think everybody since the last chapter of ulysses has practiced what you'd call modified stream of consciousness sure because joyce pushed the idea of stream of consciousness as far as it would go, and it sort of just died there, mm-hmm. pathetically. Um, but yes, the uh, a, but definitely a sort of you know, more structured around the way thoughts lead into other thoughts, let us say, than right than you know formal sort of sort of plot structure. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and you know also just just uh, the. Sort of the idea of hero worship versus, like, wanting to sort of tear down your hero and be better than them. Yep. That tension, I think, is much more, much closer to the surface in Ravelstein than it is Absolutely. in Seymour. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. And that that sort of uh, tension um, uh, is is one of kind of Ravelstein's philosophies so to speak, yeah. that, like that philosophy, well, because Ravelstein um, is a, a philosophy teacher, a political philosophy teacher, right. and he's got this whole thing about love and desire and trying to complete yourself kind of based on the myth of Eros, uh, which there we could go back to till we have faces. Sure. Um, <laughs> and so this is all of the books we've read so far in one. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, in 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 that uh, that context context that um, man is is severed uh, and needs to complete himself and yes. so that longing to complete himself is the drive of the narrator in Ravelstein. Sure. Uh, Though of course naturally for for the character he gets sort of that that tension more from uh, Plato than he does from yes. from uh, ancient myth. Right. Um, though of course Plato. It's sort of recursive here, which is is actually a word I was going to bring up later, but um, that, you know, Plato used myths in his philosophical discourse to get at the more sort of abstract philosophical truths that he was aiming mm-hmm. for. Yeah, as uh, illustrations and such. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I've read some Saul Bellow before, and this okay. is very much in his style, This, which is, you know, that nonlinear sort of thing. Very cerebral. I think I used that term when I um, introduced the book. Um, that it, the action is entirely in the mind. Sure. Um, except for like the last fifty pages of the the book when there, you've got something a little more narrative to it. Sure. Um, and uh, he's facing his death and, and struggling with his illness and trying to come back and everything. Um, but at the same time, that's almost one of the most cerebral section yeah yeah. (laughs) at the same time yeah um however it is also very different from anything that i've read by saul bellow and my experience is admittedly limited um but part of it i think comes from the fact and i mentioned this too that this is considered his most autobiographical novel which i think is correct interesting um but only in a sense because chick the narrator is saul bellow and Ravelstein is Saul Bellow's friend, Alan Bloom. Oh. Um, who, and yes, I did a little research on it. <laughs> so, very bad modernist criticism here. No. But I think Saul Bellow would be proud of me for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would. I think he would. I think he's a, he's a writer in a postmodern era who, in some senses, is very much taking out the boxing gloves against strains of modernism and postmodernism. Absolutely he is. Well the the um the phrase uh we're we're kinda doing a scattershot here of all the themes. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the real reality uh mm. is something that concerns Chick the narrator and would concern Saul Bellow too and I'm sure. not sure if I'm gonna find the first occasion it's mentioned, but it's in the context of um being a child mm-hmm. um and having a concept of real reality and how adults pander to the children and say okay you can you can uh, you can think about real reality that's fine whatever you're cute right. uh, oh there i found it uh yep page 84 in my edition it's Penguin classics uh in children this impression real reality is tolerated by adults up to a certain age nothing can be done about it in well-to-do families it lasts longer perhaps but ravelstein might have argued that there was a danger of self-indulgence in it either you continue to live in epiphanies or you shake them off and take up trades and tasks. You adopt rational principles and concern yourself with society or politics. Um, this is all uh, in the context of Chick's memories of his childhood. Um, his own childhood. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Just a, a page prior to this, he said, God appeared very early to me. Uh, and then he starts describing God and uh, who God was to him and trying to understand real reality. And as the book goes on, he, he explains real reality as being what underlies our perceptions or the pictures as he talks about them. The pictures being um, what we call reality. We fall in love with our reality of the pictures that we see, our perceptions. Uh, and he talks about the brain uh, doing this weird uh, inversion, conversion, and mashup, and flip upside down, and twisting of reality, and then our perception is what's left, and that's what we call reality. Right. And he's going back to, as a child, he started understanding what perception was, and thinking, well, real reality is not what I perceive, real reality is what's underneath it. Right. Uh, and that's what he says, well, adults are like, okay, fine, but, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna go do our jobs. We're right. Live right. our lives. Right. And he's holding on to that idea. Right. Which is an interesting, of course, with the Plato sort of or overtones. Um, you know, there's there's a, an easy analogy to Plato's allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of someone 
only ever having seen the shadows of reality and thinking those were reality. And what does the brain do when it's confronted by real reality? And would you even be able to recognize it if you saw it? Um, I forgot what I was going to say. I totally had you a thought. Were, you were, on, you were a, on a roll there. No, I was. <laughs> and and it's lost to me. Um, no, I got nothing. Uh, but the other... Now, early on in the book, not, you know, right at the front, <laughs> but early on, it's mentioned that... Uh, oh, I had it underlined, and now I don't know where it is. Um... But the two sources of life for Ravelstein were Jerusalem and Athens. Yes. Um, which, that... of course, is a is sort of a, a um, synecdoche for saying the the Greek philosophical tradition and the sort of Judeo Christian um, uh, religious Upbringing. tradition. Yep. Um, which, in in this book at least, uh, very much sort of the the Jewish end of that predominates in, in, you know, what we have at least directly on the page. Yes. Um, Ravelstein is a Jew. I think Chick is a Jew. Yep. Um, it's interesting to me though. One of the notes I made fairly early on again was that there's this, this rhetorical style or this, this, uh, this storytelling style in it, um, that seems to go in circles or almost in spirals. Yes. Um, and, and, uh, you know, something will be touched on and then gone away from and then come back to and touched on again. And often there's sort of an accretion when, when it's touched on again. It's it's built into, you know, it's it's this thing you already know. And then it's built into, uh, you know, something something much larger mm-hmm. um, or just something additional. And uh, to me, and I, I uh, oh, so one, one example, and I was trying to find it as I was talking, but... Um, one example of this is, uh, first of all, the rhetorical style of this show. <laughs> Second of all, uh, later in the book, when when uh, Grilescu is mentioned several oh, times, yes. and he's introduced more towards the middle, I would say, yep. um, and gone away from, and come back to maybe once or twice, and gone away from again, and then towards the end, nearly at the end of the book, um, we have just the sentence, I recall during the flight I began again to talk about the young friend of Grilescu who was murdered in a stall of the men's room. Mm-hmm. And, like, Grilescu and his young friend have been talked about several times, but that murder never Never was news. mentioned. Yep, yep, yeah. that's, that's new. Right. Um, so, what it made me think of, and I really should probably let you say this, because I think <laughs> it's an insight that I got originally from you, oh. but it made me think of the rhetorical structure of the Gospel of John. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, you know, the the um, sort of, again, the structure is very spiral. Spiral. It's, yep. it's, you know, it starts in one place and sort of adds on and, and builds. And Which is, is just kind of John's whole style. It's in his epistles. It's in the, the book of Revelation, too. It, it all sure. spirals. Each, each one of those books is a tightly knit spiral. Um, and I, I like that picture for this book. And I think it goes through the entire thing. Uh, that whole yeah. spiraling outward. Um, in general, Saul Bellow's books are thick. Yeah. E- even just 201 pages as mine is, it's still thick. Yeah. Uh, I think I sent you a text saying it took me 20 minutes to read two pages yeah. or something. Uh, and that's because it's so heavy and you have to take time to read it. And I would read a sentence and stop and stare at the wall uh-huh. <laughs> thinking about it for uh-huh. a while because... 
it carries such weight. Um, but that weight and, and it's, it's burdensome to just get through it. Yes. But I think, uh, and this is, this is my judgment on this book and you can feel free to agree or disagree on this. The end is an Im- immense payoff. Uh-huh. I feel uh-huh. entirely resolved. Yeah. I, when I finished this book, I set it down and just felt satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because of that spiraling feature. It spirals out and spirals out until you get the perfect circle at the yeah. end. And it leads also to, if I can start this now, we'll, we'll go into our segment on names with Michael. Oh, okay. Because it's connected. Um, what? Is it? It is. Is it? It's like it's always connected. It's like it's always connected. It's, right. Oh, it's weird. Names. 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 Names with Michael. Uh, Ravelstein Uh is a mixture of two words, Ravel and Stein. Right. Ravel being that sort of spiral and winding and unwinding. And the interesting thing about the word Ravel is it can mean to put into a ball or to take out of a ball. Sure. Uh, Now, before you get too much farther into actually doing this well, what I thought of (laughs) Ravelstein, obviously a stein is like a mug of beer. Sure. And a Ravel makes one think of like like a knitting, like a a, ball of of yarn or Mm -hmm. to knit. So what I figure is that Ravelstein is someone drinking (laughs) ball of yarn from a German beer mug. That's right, Ethan. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. I am proud of me. You, yes. Now let me show you how you're actually wrong. Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> no. Okay, but uh, this um, this idea of the rabble idea, I think, was very foremost in Saul Bellow's mind as he's writing this. Mm-hmm. Um, because, well, the whole premise of the book is Ravelstein the Friends tells Chick, the narrator, that he wants him to write a memoir yes. of him. Uh, which actually, interestingly, later at the end, um, Chick says that uh, it's... Um, oh, here we go. Um, the promise I had made years ago to write a short description of Ravelstein and to give an account of his life, which is not necessarily the same thing as a memoir. Right. But that is that is ultimately what he does, right. is give a short description and an account of his life. Um, With a bunch of what, what, what? Accretions. <laughs> Accretions, yes. Um, but so uh, this is a huge task that Ravelstein lays on Chick. Right. Uh, write a memoir of me. And by the end of the book, Chick is feeling this like uh, a, a burden. He is beholden to the dead. Uh, and the image is there, too. Uh, as he's sick with this fever from the toxin that he got from the, the, the red herring, I mean the red snapper. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> he's, he, he gets strapped down to a bed because, uh, he can't bear not to have his independence. Right. Uh, he's fighting it. He doesn't want to ride in the ambulance. He doesn't want to be strapped down to anything. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's a very comedic scene in which he convinces the doctor that he'll ride in the ambulance if he can ride as a passenger instead of in the back <laughs> of the, right. the gurney. Uh, right. but, um, so that independence for Chick, uh, and now he's strapped down and it's, it describes he describes it as being bound to death hmm. when he's strapped to this hospital bed because he keeps getting up and, and falling over and hurting himself. So he's bound to death, and that is exactly how he feels. He feels bound to his dead Ravelstein, mm-hmm. as Saul Bellow feels bound to his dead of Alan Bloom, the the 
political philosopher. Sure. Um, but uh, so that that idea of this huge, immense task that needs to be unraveled, it's immensely complicated. And so he needs to uncomplicate it, but also not do injustice to the complication. So ravel. And hence the, the style, the, the structure of the whole book being this unraveling, spiraling outward sort of structure. Sure. That's the first part of the name. The second part, Stein, uh, or Stone, or Headstone. Uh, Ravel Stein, the task is, the task that is put before Chick, or Saul Bellow, is put into the name of the character. He sure. needs to ravel the headstone or unravel the headstone. He needs to uncomplicate this and get a short description out. Sure. He needs to get the epitaph down for Ravelstein. Uh, and having that in mind, the stone, the, sti- the, the headstone idea, um, it makes sense then where Chick comes from. Because Chick is onomatopoeia. It's the sound of engraving uh. a stone. Uh-huh. Chick is that engraving. He's the one who's making the chick, chick, chick into right, a stone. Right, right. So there are my thoughts on the on the names, aside from uh, like other characters who m- undoubtedly have some significance, like uh, Rosamund, um, with the which in the the dedication to the book he says it's and to the real Rosie. Uh-huh. So the the rose idea being the life there, and he describes her as saving him several times, and she's sure. much younger than he is, his wife. Um, but yeah, Rose even. Oh, as I was sort of paging through, yes, and, uh, definitely completely paying attention to everything you were saying. Good. <laughs> um, no, I was, but I was also like looking through because I made the mistake of reading this a couple weeks ago and not having come back to it. Um, but. Now I forgot what I was going to say. You're paging through. I was talking about names. Anamatopia. Uh, Art. Rosamund. Um, oh, I remember. It's yet another reason that this book is actually just Seymour an introduction longer and written by Saul Bellow. Yep. Is the whole Longer and Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, but the whole vaudeville aspect. Yes. And that's mentioned specifically in here. Vaudeville yeah, is... yeah. Vaudeville is, becomes a major theme. Like it's, yep. it's a word that's repeated multiple times over over multiple sections of the book, um, and it's it's similar, I think. And I think there is perhaps a sort of a philosophical overlap between Salinger and and Saul Bellow here, mm-hmm. who really both in in culture and in education, and also just in in temperament and reaction to culture and education in all those ways they're very similar yeah um or at least there's there's a lot of, of echoing um especially in that both were sort of rejected the uh the cultural moment that they were nevertheless sort of complicit in creating um but that i once again that idea that you know this is a performance mm-hmm. of myself this is a performance of ravelstein ravelstein himself was a performance which you can see on two levels you can take it within the text itself mm-hmm. and you can also take it as a meta know, thing because these are pseudonyms for real people and <laughs> right but but clearly the very nature of writing a novel mm-hmm. um especially writing a novel as opposed to an actual memoir or you know let alone some an autobiography autobiography um the nature of it is that you're doing a performance yes you know you could argue that that even especially a memoir but even an autobiography is a performance um you know i'm i'm 
years into trying to slog my way through Mark Twain's autobiography, and even though that sucker is 1,200 pages long, it's very much a performance. It's mm-hmm. Mark Twain performing Mark Twain. Right. Um, and he is very conscious of that and would have it no other way, even though he's often considered one of the most sincere and open uh, authors in American letters. You know, it's still, it's, this is all performance. Yep. Um, and then, you know, the whole question, and again, this goes back to Salinger, but but it's it's in this novel also, is sort of, can you use performance to get at truth? Sure. Um, and that's a major, that's an even more major question in Franny and Zoe by Salinger. Okay. Um, that's, that's almost like the central theme of the book. Um, can you use performance to get at truth? Sure. Um, I would think that is actually, now that you say that, I'm having an epiphany, a, uh-huh. a childish epiphany here. Um, Getting I at think the, the, I think the real reality. The here. real reality from the pictures, mm-hmm. which are the surface of things, right. uh, he says. The, the, um, the, and he says, too, that by the surface of things, you know the reality. Right. Um, and so getting through the performance, seeing the truth. And I think that's something even more key because he's writing about Ravelstein and his purpose is to communicate Ravelstein. But as we've already said, he winds up communicating more about Chick, mm-hmm. uh, even though on the surface it is Ravelstein. And I think that's not an accident. Hmm. Well, it, obviously not an accident, um, but to a different degree. Let me formulate my thoughts here. All right. Brace yourself. All right. I'm going to get this out. Gentle so, listener, you might want to grab the edge of your seat or the wall or anything that is hold on. stable. It's coming. Because Michael's epiphany is about to be birthed into reality. That's right. And it's coming out. Foundations might shake. This, this metaphor Here it is comes. getting disturbing very yes, quickly. All right. Uh, so Ravelstein asks Chick to write a memoir of him or a description and asks him to do it in his style because he says, your style is the best style to communicate me. Right. Uh also, it was Chick's idea for Ravelstein to write the book that made him his millions. Right. Uh, so, Chick has the publishing idea out there, and so that gets the surface out for Ravelstein. It's the perfect surface for Ravelstein. Ravelstein says that himself. Chick also, in writing, continues in this spiraling and kind of wandering, and I think he's, uh, this is an idea that I had before too, that he's He's practicing throughout the entire book until he gets to the end. Mm-hmm. He's, he's practicing, uh, trying to get this out. And in that practicing, he also will stray afield. And he does this constantly and, and numerous times. He says, how did I get so far afield? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> or I've digressed so very far. Uh, and uh, But some of those digressions, too, are digressions into the ideas and the philosophy of Ravelstein. Right. And then he says, but I'm not writing about his ideas. You can read that in his book. Right. I'm writing about the man. And so he's trying to figure out how to write about this man who was ideas. Right. He, this man is ideas. They're, they are identical. And so how he has to communicate this man is through his own ideas. Right. And so he has to put on the performance of this man through his own ideas, be the surface for this man that this man asked him to do, and communicate that way. So now that you're saying all that, what trips in my mind is something that I feel like is almost super obvious that I sort of can't believe I didn't already think of, is the uh, the idea that they are Plato and Socrates. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> good call. Wow. Right? 
Wow, we're both dumb. Right? <laughs> How do we get half an hour into the show and, and not, not make that connection? That. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Along so, with the fact that Gravelstein was, was gay and had sexual encounters with younger boys. And oh my gosh, yeah. Socrates, too. I mean, that's yeah. even just a surface thing, the, the whole eccentricities thing. Yeah. Which is another theme here, getting at the eccentricities right. of Ravelstein, which, right. like, if you're not going to talk about his ideas, you have to talk about his eccentricities, but those aren't right. enough, and those, like... He says explicitly, Chick says explicitly, don't judge a person by his eccentricities. Right. right. So, yeah. But he can't. He has to. Right. <laughs> He's stuck with the pictures. He's stuck with the surface and the performance. Exactly. Which and it is, has to be his performance. Which is all Plato. Yes. But, now, of course, you know, now that I've spelled out, or said this connection already, this is just spelling out what probably is obvious. But, uh, so, Socrates, of course, never wrote a word. Right. Um... At least as far as we know. Never never right. wrote anything down. Nothing that we have anyway. Yeah. Um, and so everything that we have of Socrates comes through Plato. Yep. And of course there's great scholarly debate about whether um, Plato accurately represented Socrates' opinions, whether he mostly accurately represented them and like did a little bit of his own thing, or whether he simply used Socrates as a character who would have been like well regarded in the mm -hmm. in the culture and the context. To communicate Plato's own ideas. Mm -hmm. It could be any of those things. It could be anywhere on that whole spectrum. Which essentially is what we have here. Exactly. Um, Interestingly, too, so Ravelstein wrote a book. Yeah. And Alan Bloom wrote that book. And that okay. book is called The Closing of the American Mind. Oh, I've heard of that book. And the person who wrote the introduction to that book is Saul Bellow. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Which, I mean, the the friendship that's depicted between Ravelstein and Chick is very true to Saul Bellow and Alan Bloom. That's sure. exactly their friendship. They were sure. very close friends. Um, but wow, okay, Epiphanies over and over again. Right. This is good. Uh, I'm gonna I'm so, gonna prove my name thing really quick here. Okay, go ahead. Uh, because it is textual on 182 of my uh uh copy. Yes. Um. This, he says, I was painfully preoccupied with the restraining vest or pullover I was forced to wear. This hot khaki vest was constricting. It was killing me, binding me to death. I tried and failed to unravel it. <laughs> there you go. There we are. So, um, that's not an accident. It's all Bella knew what he was doing. Yeah, no. Freaking putz. <laughs> um, and also on that, uh, on that same page, uh, he notices uh, the the hospital attendant hanging Christmas lights. Yes. Um, and then he adds this little sentence in there, um, or two sentences. I'm gonna I'm gonna put two of them. Taking note is part of my job description. Existence is or was the job. And so taking note, observing, yeah, and yeah, yeah. then recording that. The work of a writer. If, yeah. If you just distill it down there, taking note, noticing things, and or someone them. who who chisels things into the stone. Yep. Um, yeah, that's, that's, so. wow. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I agree with your assessment of the density of this book, just, just, you know, that being mm -hmm. one out, out of many possible examples. Um, I wrote all over my copy of this book, and I know that's like standard practice for you, is yeah. like any book that you've read. Um, Unless I really don't like it. <laughs> sure, but like... You know, almost any book, you know, including some unpublished ones of mine yep. <laughs> that you've read, you've written all over them. Like, I can tell, uh, if I'm at your house and I'm paging through your, your books, as one does, right, gentle yep. listener? This is not you just go into people's me, houses me being a creeper. Anyway, um, yeah, I can always tell which ones you've read because there's writing all over them. 
Mm-hmm. I personally, I occasionally will write on a book, but it is not super common. Um, the last book that I can remember having annotated with any kind of thoroughness is uh, Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. Mm. Probably one of the densest books of the 20th century. But I found myself, and just, I didn't even set out to do it, I, did, I just needed to start keeping track of stuff within the first ten pages, and I found myself oh, yeah. going around with a pen and just writing stuff. Um, and when you sent me that text about, you know, taking 20 minutes to read, uh, what was it, 20 minutes to read, like, two, two and a half three pages. pages yeah. or something, yeah. Um, I, I didn't do exactly that, but what I found myself doing is I would read to a certain point and then stop because I had to go to go to work or speak to my wife or something else annoying. Um, <laughs> but I love you, Karen, if you're listening, which you're probably not. Anyway, um, now I'm going to hear doubly about this. If yeah, he is you listening. are. Um, anyway. I almost lost. <laughs> what? Go on. What no, go on. You, you almost what? And nothing. No, okay. You were talking about your wife. Uh, I was. No, I was getting myself in trouble about my wife. Yep. No, I was talking about how I wrote all over this book. Um, and what I would do is, so yeah, I'd get to a stop where I had to stop for whatever reason. Um, I'd go off and, and take care of whatever annoying responsibility, such as perhaps feeding my wife. Um, and I'd come back. And I'd forget exactly where I had left off, and I'd go back a couple pages, and I would notice that I had written, so like I, I knew where I was. But then, like I'd notice something else that I hadn't underlined or <laughs> annotated, and I'd have to underline that too. Or I'd get like 20 pages later, and something would strike me, and I'd have to go back 30 pages and underline something specific or write about something specific in the margin. But then, as I was traveling forward again, those 30 pages, then I'd find like eight other things that I hadn't been looking for. That's, that's um, absolutely a danger in this book, and, and I'm finding spots where I want to underline and circle and yeah. mark things in here now, but my wife has my pen, and so that's super annoying. But... I literally have a cup of pens, <laughs> a cup of pens, <laughs> densely packed with pens, like no, 15 okay. feet I'll away I'll be from fine, us. I'm fine. Are you, are you sure? It. You don't sound fine. I'm, I'm alright. Why are you so not alright all of a sudden? <laughs> Is there a specific thing that's been affecting you that you'd like to mention? <laughs> no, I don't want to mention anything. Uh, that's what I thought. Anyway, um, so, I've, I've been having this epiphany. Just, <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> well, uh, gentle listener, Michael's wife Sarah has just won this entire episode. <laughs> um, as I said, the, the half sentence that I was just about to say, through the closed door of our recording studio, which is not definitely not just the guest bedroom of my apartment, <laughs> through the closed door, Michael's pen appeared. because <laughs> um, my wife almost is awesome. As if he had called for it. So Michael is either a genie or his wife is a genie. I could be a wizard. He could be. You could be a wizard, and your wife could be a genie. But that seems like a. You already, it already happened, and, and you it didn't did. do it. No. So I'm pretty sure it's Sarah that's Yeah, that's a wizard. you're right. Sarah's the magic one. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> do, do you want this pen? Sure, I'll take it. Now that it's here? <laughs> Since it's here. Sarah, uh, there is Unless a... you want it back, Sarah. Do you want it back? She, okay. There She's is, good. there is, on the desk in there, <laughs> there is a giant cup of pens if you want another pen. You're welcome. Um, okay. so, now that I've gotten myself in trouble with my wife on this broadcast, you also have gotten yourself in trouble with your wife on I this did. broadcast. Yep. And we know that she was listening. She was, yes. So, 
in conclusion, Sarah wins this broadcast and you lose. That's yep. That's and accurate. I'm actually kinda kinda good for the mo. <laughs> You're good. Um <laughs> Yeah. Anyway. So uh, an epiphany that I do want to say because I've been having it and then forgetting it and then having it again, but it it does mm-hmm. go in with our with our previous epiphany slash epiphanies. There have been so many. There have been several. I hope the gentle listener has has recovered well from the shaking foundations of the earth that they have experienced. Yep. Um. So. Groundbreaking stuff. Here's an here's an epiphany that I had, and it was something that I had taken note of on my initial read through, and wondered about, and been thinking about, and it's only sort of as we've started recording it, I think I've had a few different insights into into what is going on here. So, what I noticed was that um, the very front end <laughs> of the book. Um, I did not forget which exact phrase I, I am not allowed to say and therefore replaced it with front end. That's not something that happened. Um, <laughs> I just chose those words on purpose. But at the very front end of the book... Um, As opposed to the back end. Exactly. Uh, which we've already talked about because we're doing things out of order. Totally out of order. Well, you kind of have to. I mean, it's it's a big spirally... Exactly, yeah. Tiny-wimey... Wibbly-wobbly. Wibbly-wobbly. <laughs> yeah, stuff. <laughs> stuff. So... On approximately page three or four, at least in my copy, uh, it's, it's sort of the opening scene that, that Chick spends about the first hundred pages trying to write. Yep. Um, and, and semi-failing, semi-succeeding, it's complicated. Um, so in that opening scene, Michael Jackson is name-checked. Yep. And up until then, I had thought that this was a much older book. Sure. Partially because I guess I think of Saul Bellow more in the terms of, like, 1950s, 1960s yeah, writers. which is when he was more prolific. and Yeah, and some of his probably more well-known, more well-known. and popular works came out. Um, but I had to go back and, and figure out that this the original copyright for this book is the year 2000. Yep. So well into, you know, when you could have name-checked Michael Jackson. Um, and then there's a sentence on, on page 55 in my copy. I think our copies this month are wildly different. Very so, different. Very different. Um, I don't know that that helps you at all, Michael. Mm, but Probably not. Um, there's a sentence. You know how television is. You can't tell the wars from the NBA events, sports, superpower glamour, high-tech military operations. Um, you know, they're the, the reference to TV, which first of all, in my note, in the actual, in my actual margin, is that this sounds very much like a, a reduction of Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is mm. a complete book that came out, I believe, in the early 90s, essentially about the, the, the medium of TV being its actual message, and that message being that all things are entertainment, and it doesn't matter whether it's NBA events, a trashy soap opera... Sure. Um, actual war in the Middle East, uh, you know, a murder that got committed two states over. All mm-hmm. of these things are just repackaged as entertainment. entertainment. Um, and it was interesting to me because among sort of like uh, uh, male novelists with a very specific prose style, um, you know, you would talk about J.D. Salinger, you'd talk about uh, uh, Thomas Pynchon, um, you know, you talk about uh, David Foster Wallace and Saul Bellow would inevitably come up in a in a conversation. Sure. At least if you're going broad strokes. Um, 
but the thing that I think separates at least Ravelstein, which I admit is the only Bellow I've read, separates this book from a lot of the, the writings of those those folks is the fact that it seems much more timeless. Um, it's there's, you know, Pynchon, especially in his later books, uh, really almost takes this delight in conflating sort of highbrow literature with lowbrow pulp stuff. Hmm. Um, his novel Against the Day was considered literature because Pynchon was an established literary figure by the, the time that it came out. But the first, you know, 300 pages, which is only a quarter of the novel, but the first 300 pages are written essentially as like a pulp novel from the turn of the 20th century. Hmm. You know, um, and other Pynchon novels and other, and, you know, David Foster Wallace is, tends to be this way. Um, uh, you know, other other novels by such people tend to be this way where they're very almost hyper aware of their cultural moment um mm-hmm. you know there's pension folds in all kinds of like cultural references and and you know popular songs and things like that um whereas i almost wonder if if beginning with michael jackson and then really not talking about anything that couldn't have been in, say, like a 19th century novel, mm-hmm. except for a few toss-off references to TV and so forth. I almost wonder if that's a rejection of that kind of hyper-present, hyper-aware sure. sort of literature. Well, and- um, which would fold into everything we've been talking about, mm-hmm. about, you know, the idea of real reality <laughs> and, you know, the sentence about... Um, you know how television is, you can't tell the wars from the NBA events, being this like hyper surface level um, awareness that there's there's this, you know, television again operates on the the um, idea of taking images and refolding them and repackaging them and spitting them back out in this very specific format. Yeah. Um, almost similar to uh, Chick's descriptions of the brain and the and the idea of the pictures. What is TV except just a succession just pictures. of pictures so fast that we can't process them as individual not a moving pictures. image? Yeah, sure. exactly, individual pictures. <clears throat> um, so well, it, it doesn't even start with uh, Michael Jackson either, but he has in the second paragraph, uh, among the debunkers and spoofers who formed the tastes and minds of my generation... H.L. Mencken was most prominent, then uh, American Mercury, Scopes Trial Mencken, Mencken, William Jennings Bryan, the Bible Belt, Bubis Americanus, which is a great little uh-huh. love it. Uh-huh. Clarence Darrow, uh, and so he goes through, uh, especially just Darrow and Mencken and uh, William Jennings and Bryan. Huge there and stuff. reference, obviously, to Inherit the Wind. Yep, yep. Um, <clears throat> it almost it does almost start out as this hyper aware sort of postmodernist Absolutely. style of novel, but then departs from that very quickly. Yep. Um, and Immediately, if we, it's no longer <clears throat> rooted that way. Yeah. And if we think of, you know, uh, uh, Chick and Ravelstein as a modern-day uh, Plato and Socrates, it's almost like the two of them mining beneath that, that surface, trying to get at sure. the real reality. Um, and even, you know, you could say this is just like Plato and Socrates in modern dress, or if Plato and Socrates lived now, this is what they would do. Sure. Yeah. Well, in that sense, then the the whole spiral structure of this of this novel, uh, it, think of it in three dimensions, not just a spiral, but spiraling down beneath the surface, and mm-hmm. then you've got like a drill. <laughs> yeah. It's drilling down, in in Revelstein, drilling through the stone. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Second 
Second names with Michael insight. <laughs> Double the mini, fun. Mini segment. <laughs> there you go. We're not very good at creating segments, nope. gentle listener, in case you yeah. haven't noticed. But, I think we declared names with Michael last episode and then spent like 40 minutes digressing and coming back to the name. Yeah, we kind of came back to it. Our um, whole style is the style of Saul Bellow. Kind it of, is. It really is. But, like, it, you, In fact, most of the novels that we've chosen so far, I would say... You could, like, psychoanalyze the style of this show, like, reverse engineer it right. through the novel. Right, you probably could. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that that whole idea of the, the entertainment uh, starts yeah. the novel. It's the theme. Yeah. Odd that mankind's benefactors should be amusing people. In America, at least, this is often the case. Anyone who wants to govern the country has to entertain it. Yes. And there's <clears> that <throat> right away, yep. that that theme of, of performance of yes. essentially vaudeville. Starting out with that... During the Civil War, people complained about Lincoln's funny stories. Yep. That's vaudeville Which, right away. Yes. And he's he's already getting into the humor, Saul, the Saul Bellow humor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And his humor is great. Yeah. <laughs> I love Saul Bellow's sense of humor. It's very dry. Yeah. And awesome. Yeah. Right. It's funny. This this whole book is funny. It shouldn't be all that funny. It really shouldn't. I mean, it's a, it's a book about it death. Right. It, ultimately, it is. It is a book about death and the meaning of death. Uh, on the back of my book, it pulls a quote from inside the book that is all about death. I wonder mm. if anyone believes that the grave is all there is. No one can give up on the pictures. The pictures must and will continue. Right. Which is Chick paraphrasing Ravelstein's response to Chick's answer to Ravelstein's question of what happens when you die. <laughs> I hate that you could do that sentence <laughs> this far into the episode. <laughs> Why? What's what? Why? Why shouldn't I be able to do that sentence? I don't. I don't because we've been talking for an hour. Oh, okay. And for no other reason whatsoever. <laughs> oh, is that it? Yeah, that's is exactly that it. So... That and nothing else. Yeah, nothing else. Nothing else. Yeah. Right. Um, well, something you pointed out to me, I want to mention real quick. Yeah. Um, the that that I, it was another connection when you went to um the the young friend who was killed in a bathroom stall. Yes. Um, which when it's mentioned kind of just anecdotally, that's the only time you see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what other death you never see? What's that? Ravelstein's. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. That is true. Yeah. It's it's danced around. You get. Leading up to it, and just about there, like, yeah. he's on his deathbed, and the family is all there around him. Well, family, quote, in heavy air quotes. Yes. Um, and then... Well, the listener you, can see that, so you yeah, don't have to say it. Yeah. Uh, and then you change to the next segment, because it's split into basically three parts, but right. unlabeled. Right. And then in the third part, it's been six years since he died. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very. That's a very good point. Um, and it just says there, he died six years ago. Right and partly... Part three. Yeah. And partly that may be uh, related to the thing that you said before. Wait, let me see the back of your What book. did I say before? Uh, the whole idea of no one can accept, no one can give up on the picture. Yep. No one can accept the idea of death. Well, and the end, the very last line of the book, you don't easily give up a creature like Ravelstein to death. Yes, yes. He can't. Right, <laughs> right. So... We're at about that time, yep. unless you have anything else you want to try to cram into this episode, I feel like. Let's wait two weeks. Let's wait two weeks, <laughs> reconvene, and what I would like to discuss in two weeks is uh, the Jewish question. Yes. The Jewish question is a very good one to bring up. The Jewish question. You can stop saying it now. The Jewish question. 
Jewish question. Drink your water. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for joining us. And we will okay. see you again in two weeks. Uh, you can find us in the meantime. Oh, yeah, we should probably do this we, because yep. they won't know for nope, two weeks. For two weeks. Unless we do. So, uh, we'll see you again in two weeks, gentle listener. We will be drinking scotch that entire time, so expect it to be a disaster. Uh, but in the meantime, um, you can feel free, first of all, to read along with our next book, which Michael doesn't know what it is yet, but Don't. you, gentle listener, do. So it has been posted on the website by this time that you were hearing it. Exactly. So if that's not some wibbly-wobbly, <clears throat> timey-wimey nonsense, I don't know what is. Yep. In the um, show notes, too. It's usually in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, just, like, scroll down. You'll find it. Unless you're listening, like, on on uh, uh, iTunes or something where you've downloaded it and you don't have the show notes handy. True. So yeah. maybe, does iTunes include think, the show notes? Yeah, they do. I think it does. Yep, it's okay. there. Never mind. There. So you have no excuse, gentle listener, no not excuse. to know what the book is, even though we do right now. Anyway, yep. so feel free to read along with our next book. <laughs> Lost in the Cosmos, The Last Self-Help Book, um, by Walker Percy. (laughs) Michael will edit. Oh, that's such a good book. Right? (laughs) I was going to say Michael will edit in later the actual, saying the actual title of the book. You're you're giving me too much to do. (laughs) I know. I know. Well, you made me re-record a whole episode of Intermission, so. um, I mean, just because it was bad and stuff. Anyway. That's not a that's not a jab at you, Karen. It was bad because I can't edit for crap. It was Ethan's fault. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Yeah. All right. So in the meantime, be sure to feel free to contact us with your thoughts on Bravelstein or on our next book. Or, <laughs> very good. You're just making work for yourself now. I know. <laughs> or your thoughts on anything else. Um, if you like what we do, please review us on iTunes. Follow us on. We are on Stitcher now. We um, are on Stitcher. I'm slowly working on getting us on other platforms, but yes. it's slow because, like, need to get I have a life and other stuff. Things. Um, so maybe by the time you hear this, Michael will be able to edit in me saying that we're on more platforms. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, follow us on Twitter at Room with Scotch. Uh, follow us on Facebook. We are at Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch on Facebook. Yep. Um, if you want to hear more from the Tapestry Radio Network, including uh, some episodes of our fiction podcast, Intermission, that I did edit mm-hmm. okay. Um, it's it's a highly experimental backstage drama. Backstage sort of uh, audio, drama, audio drama. drama. Yeah. And so so uh, if you want to hear some of that, if you want to hear one of our one or both of our two RPG podcasts, we have Pokemon Rollout, the mm-hmm. Pokemon RPG. Uh, we have Roll to Amble, which is a D&D uh, play podcast. Um, they're both very good. Uh, you can follow us. To get all our stuff, you can follow us on the Tapestry Radio Network Facebook page. Um, and in the Tapestry Radio Tap House group. Yes, which you can find if you if you go to Facebook and search for Tapestry Radio Tap House. You can find us there. Um, you will have to ask for permission to enter the group, but if you are not a foreign spy, a robot, or some mm-hmm. sort of jerk. Because we, we are will... patriots and robigots. Yes. <laughs> but other than that, we will permit you to enter <laughs> if you ask. So, uh, there's all the things for us, and we look forward to talking at you in two weeks. Now again.
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener, obviated objects of oblivion obambulating about, offered unto you in the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org, from our fancy to yours. Thank you.